Oh, I Absolutely, I can do that. Then you'll find a real good feature, but it just doesn't work for you guys. Oh, I, I liked it. I, I knew where they were. <laughs> but, but, okay. This morning we're studying in the book of Acts in chapter 12. This is a really interesting place in the Bible. And it is basically that. It's the Acts of the Apostles. And as you'll recall in chapter 11, the Peter was sent to, or no, Saul and Barnabas, excuse me, were sent with a, an offering to the church at Jerusalem for the famine that had been predicted by Agabus. And uh, so they had gone on down there. But back here in Antioch, uh, Herod, the Roman king, now I say a king, he was a, he was a king appointed by Caesar over four uh, territories there, which included Judea and Samaria, Galilee, and and that region in there. And he was uh, quite proud of himself, and he was uh, a very authoritarian ruler. And he was trying to please the, the Jewish people here. And <clears throat> so they, they had been upset with these uh, followers of the way, the Christians. And so he set about to do something that would please the Jews. Verse 1 of chapter 12 says, Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. In other words, he arrested people who were in the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. Uh, It tells us that he beheaded him. This was his method of killing James. And, it, and because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. And so these, these were the days of unleavened bread. This was a time right prior to the Passover. And when he apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after, oh, it says after Easter, it's after the Passover, to bring him forth to the people. So he was, he said, this, this is getting me uh, good PR among all these Jews here. And so I'm going to see what I can do about this. So he arrested Peter, who was a, uh, a leader among the people, uh, the people of the church. And he said, well, I'll keep him till after the Passover and, 
and then we'll deal with him. But he put him in in jail, and he he set sixteen soldiers to guard this one man inside a prison. And we'll go on to see that he he had Peter chained to two separate soldiers by a, by separate chains. And then they had him in an inner cell, and then there was two guards outside. So they had four people watching him at all times, four Roman soldiers. And you'd think Peter was a real criminal to have this much, this many people guarding him. But Herod didn't want him to get away, so he put him in this jail and put high security, he was a high security prisoner. And he said, we'll, we'll wait until after the Passover. It, it says Easter here in the, new, in the King James, and this is one of the places where I have a, a problem with this, because Easter was uh, a pagan holiday. And it was a fertility thing, and... I don't know, I guess the Romans may have observed it. They took any opportunity for, to observe a holiday anyway, so maybe it was their holiday, but it was a Passover for the Jews. They would all all right at the same time. So Yes. And the symbol, oddly enough, was a bunny rabbit and an egg, because those were the symbols of fertility. So okay. they took and the Catholic Church took and incorporated those to bring pagan religion towards God, to bring them what they felt closer to God, hmm. to kind of draw them in. So you talk about a, a culture shock for a lot of those folks. You know, they were trying to trying to figure out how to reach them, so they incorporated these holidays into some of our some of the religious observances of the time to get to, to do that to draw them in to draw the Jews into the to draw, to draw uh, the pagan religions in oh to draw and the so pagan religion religions the pagan and and Judeo Christian observances and kind of merge them to, to somehow to to do that and it's with majority of the holidays if you if you look at some of the backing and some of the reasonings. A lot of them have paganistic values that yes. are taken and shaped and changed to fit a more, not for lack of a better word, modern tone. You know. Yes. Not that some of those observances were, some of the observances that were pretty brutal and their and their origin and their originality, but over the years they've changed they changed those to fit the the culture and to fit the culture of the Roman Catholic Church. Yes. Andy, I know you were studying this herb. So. Well, we were actually more up against it, you might say. We saw it in practice more where we were at down there. But uh, the Catholic Church has gone into every culture, everywhere that they've gone. And they have a, the Jesuits and other branches of the Catholic Church have a deliberate plan for conquering, you know. And they want, they need political and financial. Power 
operating and, and being under the control of the Catholic Church. And so they dump it anybody's beliefs to theirs and say, oh, well, yeah, that's like us, and we've got to accommodate for that, and yeah, we'll accommodate you there, and why don't you just come on over here with us? And in Paraguay, you wouldn't believe that huge, huge amount of people who say they're Catholic and they're practicing voodoo, and I mean, you just same, name it. And the same is true, the, the Dominican, uh, is, um, uh, not Dominican Republic, but Haiti, um, a lot of that, you see a lot of the, the marriage of the two to create some kind of perverted religion that observes both sides. Yes, I saw the same thing in Vietnam. You see the, the Tao Dai and the Buddhist and the Catholic, and many of the people say, oh yeah, I'm all three, you know, it's a no problem. And, uh, you know, one thing that I've observed, and that is that our God is a jealous God, and rightfully so. He's the one that created everything, and he's the one who paid the price of our sin, and where other religions come in and say, well, we, we want to add this pagan uh, celebration to your, to your church services or your religious observations. Our God does not go for that. And we'll see we'll see that here in this chapter. That's something Late. Brother Manoj Moon over in uh, Nepal uh, has mentioned. And she said, uh, he says they, they claim, there a lot of religions claim religion of peace, but mm-hmm. they're, they're willing to kill to maintain their, what they feel is their superiority. Superiority, yeah. Faith. And, and that's sad because our God is the only one that, that dictates to us that that's not the way to act. That's right. You know, he he is he de, he demands of us to be loving and compassionate and hospitable, while not condoning sins that we observe around us. Right. He, he observes us. Uh, you know, he he implores us to do to be the example to those around us. Exactly. Which is not what other religions typically do. They encourage suppression and, and oppression and you know, yeah. You know exactly. Not to just pick on every other thing out there, but that's. Exactly. Andy? Well, uh, I remember a place in the Old Testament. I can't remember where it's at, but I can find it for you. But they had been, con- Israel had been conquered. And Assyria was trying to, you know, they took all the people out of Samaria and they stuck in some other people from their people. And then the people that they stuck in there didn't know God. And they didn't know how to act around it. And so the Lord sent wild animals in there to tear them up. And the, the Syrian king's like, what's going on here? And somebody says, well, you know, these people just don't understand the God of the land, and so he's punishing them. And so I said, well, hey, go get some priests and bring them in there. So they hauled some priests in there to teach them how to deal with God. And they didn't exactly just serve God, but they they corrected their behavior enough to where they, they could coexist with God, and he took the wild animals away. But it said that to this day, the people in that area still uh, worship God and all their other gods. But with his own people, he's not that lenient. No. We have to have a teaching priest either in or not in his people because God is a jealous God and he expects us, especially his children now. I mean, it's not bad for people who don't know him, but for his children, he doesn't put up with idolatry. And put, no. put things before him, whatever it is, things or people or whatever it is we value more than God, he 
well, and we end up facing pretty bad consequences. And I never realized it until I came in Paraguay. But he does it still. And I've watched it happen in my life and other people's life. He will tear up Jack whenever we get out of line and start worshiping other things mm. or other letting things get in the way of our service to God. Yes. I, I agree, and uh, the scripture very definitely says this isn't God's way. And <clears throat> so we, we see Peter here being kept in jail by this, and by this authoritarian king set up by Caesar. And he was... Under arrest, this wasn't just house arrest. This was uh, an arrest where he was considered to be a uh, a high-risk prisoner. <laughs> well, why this man of peace was that difficult to contain is beyond me. I, I don't know why they had to have 16 soldiers to guard him. Maybe they were doing uh, six-hour shifts where four of them at a time would be in charge of him. But anyway, we'll, we'll see that further here. So verse 5 says, Peter therefore was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. So the church was not idle during this time that Peter was arrested. The church was in fervent prayer, fasting and praying to God for Pe- on, be- on Peter's behalf. And when Herod would have brought him forth, the same night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and the keepers before the door kept the prison. So they had all this security, and Peter was there asleep. He'd been in, in prison for several days, I'm not sure how long it had been, but Herod was going to keep him until after the Passover. And after the Passover had come and gone, and Herod was about to bring him out and make a display of him before the Jewish people, uh, Peter was there bound early in the, I would guess early in the morning, you know, two or three in the morning, who knows what time it was. But God intervened here. Verse 7 says, And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shined in the prison. Right there in, in Peter's cell, there was a bright light. And he, and he smote Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise up quickly. And his chains fell off of his hands, just fell off, fell away. I... You know, this angel didn't didn't even have to have a, a lock to pick, you know. He just they just fell off. And these two Roman soldiers were left sleeping there. And the angel poked Peter in the side and says, Get up, get dressed, put on your clothes, come on, let's let's go. And so Peter uh it says and behold, the angel, angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shined in the prison, and he smote Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise up quickly. 
and his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said unto him, Gird thyself, and bind on thy sandals. And so he did. And he said unto him, Cast thy garment about thee, and follow me. You know, he says, Put on your sandals. Put on, uh, gird, they they wore their, uh, they took the belt off of their garment, their their clothing, their the robe that they wore for sleeping. And here he was bound with, by chains between two soldiers. Probably not the most convenient night's sleep he had. He'd probably been had had several nights like this. And the soldiers remained asleep, but the chains fell off of Peter. And the angel says, get up, get dressed, put your, put your sandals on, put your, put, tie your girdle about your, your waist, your belt, and take your cloak and throw it around your shoulders. Let's get out of here. Come on. Let's, let's get moving. And, uh, so Peter wasn't sure about this. You know, he, he just woken up. And the angel says, get moving, you know. And so he thought maybe this was a dream he was having. And he went out and followed him. He, he followed this angel out of, out of the prison. And wist not that it was true which was done by the angel, but thought he saw a vision. Boy, I'm, I'm just dreaming this thing. Boy, you know. Now, Herod was not going to let him go. He was not just going to turn him loose. And he, he looked at this angel and he says, boy, this, this has got to be a dream. I'm, I'm dreaming about angels coming in and letting me out of this situation that I'm in. Verse 10 says, when they were past the first and the second ward, they came into the iron gate that leadeth unto the city, which opened to them of his own accord. And they went out and passed on through one street, and forthwith the angel departed from him. So he not only did they do that, but they, they went past the first guard. And it says the first ward. Now maybe there was uh, an inner prison and an outer prison, and, and then the gate to the, out to the street. But all of these guards were asleep by God's direction. God kept them asleep during this time. And even the iron gate that goes out of the prison to the street, out of, to the street was, it just opened up by itself. And they passed through out into the street and, and then they went a, a block away or whatever. And the angel departed from him. Now, whether that angel just disappeared or walked away, I don't know. But it says he departed from him. And Peter was come to himself. He said, now I know of a surety. I know for sure that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me out of the hand of Herod and from all of the expectation of the people of the Jews. They, I think the Jews were anticipating Peter's death, same as they saw that James had been killed. And they, they were expecting that. 
as was Herod. But Peter came to himself. He says, this wasn't just a dream. I wasn't dreaming this. This is real. I'm out here in the street by myself with nobody guarding me or anything. This was God's doing. He realized that this was God that had sent the angel into his cell, that had taken the chains off of his hands, opened the doors and the locks to the prison, and kept these guards asleep. And when he had considered the thing, you know, he, he was, uh, here he was, well, what do I do now? I'm out, I'm free, but Herod's going to be looking for me anywhere I go. And so when he'd considered it, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark. So John Mark's mother's house was where people were meeting. And it says where many were gathered together praying. So this was where the church was meeting for holding their prayer service on his behalf. And Peter knocked at the door of the gate and a damsel came to hearken named Rhoda. So this this servant girl, as I understand, came to the came there to the gate to answer the knock at the gate. And her name was Rhoda. Now Rhoda's an interesting name. It's taken from a, a masculine name for the rose. So this, her name was Rose, in, and, but Rhoda is what she's called here. And when she knew Peter's voice, she opened not the gate for gladness, but ran and told how Peter stood before the gate. She didn't, instead of opening the gate and letting him in, she said, it's Peter, it's Peter. And she ran back to the, to the people who were praying and and said, Peter's at the gate, Peter's at the gate, and left him standing out there in, <laughs> on the street. <laughs> well, we get, we get excited sometimes when we see God do things. And sometimes we don't act in a reasonable manner. And so Rhoda was, came in and she and they said, Rhoda, you're crazy. He, he can't be standing out there. Herod wouldn't let him go. Herod wouldn't allow those soldiers to just turn him loose. How could he be standing out there? They couldn't believe that what she, what she had said, but they said, Rhoda, you're crazy. But Rhoda insisted. They, and they at last went to the door and saw for themselves that Peter was standing there. Uh, so Peter stood outside, still knocking at the gate. Uh, let's see, where did I leave off reading? Verse 13, And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, the damsel came and hearkened, named Rhoda. And when she knew Peter's voice, she opened not the gate for gladness, but ran in and told how Peter stood before the gate. And they said to her, Thou art mad. 
But she constantly affirmed, she insisted that it was even so. Then said they, it is his angel. It can't be Peter. It's got to be his angel (laughs) that you heard. But Peter continued knocking. And when they had opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. They were amazed that Peter was actually there. And, And they let him in. But he beckoned unto them, with his with a hand to hold their peace he said hush hush be quiet don't don't make a big fuss here because i'm here and declared unto them how that the lord had brought him out of the prison and he said go show these things unto james and to the brethren and he departed and went unto another place so he says go tell the brethren but for me, I'm getting out of here. This isn't a safe place for me to be. They're, this is the first place they're going to look when they come looking for me. Now, as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers. What was become of Peter? They said, uh-oh, we're in big trouble. Where did, Peter, where, where did he go and how could he have gotten out of here? They, di- they didn't know. They just woken up, woke up and he was gone. But they were, it says there were no small stir among the soldiers. Not only that, they were scared for their life. You lose a prisoner, and you take that prisoner's place. Verse 19 says, And when Herod had sought for him and found him not, he examined the keepers and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and there abode. Herod was upset with these soldiers. And when he came to do this little chore, putting Peter to death, Peter was gone. And he had him searched for. They searched not only the prison, but I imagine they searched the whole town. And they couldn't find him anywhere. And so he went down from Judea to Caesarea, there along the sea coast. So he left Jerusalem and went to Caesarea. So this was, an, you know, this was the f- miraculous release of Peter from prison. And God is able to do things in people's lives that are amazing that would not happen otherwise. I've seen things in my own life that were amazing to me. And, you know, God is able to do things that are impossible. It says that with man, it may be impossible, but with God, all things are possible. He can do things that we cannot. So, Herod just said, brush this thing off and says, ah, I'm, I'm, go- I'm out of here. I'm going to go down to the seacoast where, where it's a little more comfortable weather and it's nicer down there. I'm, I'm, I'm just heading down there. And there he abode. But then we see here in verse 20, there's a, a change. We're talking about Herod still, and he's down there at Caesarea. But he was... 
upset with some people that lived up north of there, up by Tyre and Sidon along the seacoast further north. And so let's read verse 20. And Herod was highly displeased with them of Tyre and Sidon, but they came with one accord to him. And having made Blastus the king's chamberlain their friend, desired peace because their country was nourished by the king's country. Now this is an interesting thing that's being said here, and there's a lot that we miss. Uh, Tyre and Sidon relied for their food source and for trade on Jerusalem. And when the king was upset with them, that was bad news for them. So they sent a, a delegation. They sent a a large delegation from these two cities up north down here to Caesarea to plead with Herod and to to appease him, to uh, do whatever they could to persuade him to be their friend again because he was upset with them. And so they made Blastus the king's chamberlain. As I understand it, chamberlain was also his treasurer and they, they, the two cities had made friends with the treasurer who got them a, a, a opportunity to come in and to talk with the king. And they desired peace because their country was nourished by the king's country. Well, the king's country included all of those uh he was a tetrarch that that he had four uh he ruled over four different regions in that area and so what what he said went and he was appointed by caesar and if he had roman guards at his disposal to do his bidding and he was the ruler of the whole region there so these people really wanted to impress Herod to, to get his favor. And upon a set day, this is verse 21, upon a set day, Herod arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne and made an oration unto them. He gave a, a speech decked out in his finest clothing and with all the pomp and ceremony of the Roman government, I'm sure. So he he set a day. He gave them a day to say, "All right, you come and tell me about tell me your sad story." And I'm gonna. But instead, he came and he preached to them. Or he he gave them a sermon. He gave them a speech. Said, "You are doing bad things." And he accused Tyre and Sidon of whatever he was upset with. And the people didn't dare say anything about him. They didn't dare say anything against him. So instead, they, they had a, a different plan. They were going to say, well, he's wonderful. He, we're going to be on his side. We're going to... And they made a big mistake here. And the people gave a shout saying, it is the voice of a God, not of a man. And Herod said, eh, kind of like that idea. 
And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, because he gave not God the glory. And he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. He died right there in front of him. He died eaten by worms. Nasty way to die, I'm sure. But God said, this is not right. He was claiming to be God, not just a man, but to be God. He didn't give God the glory. And the people were praising him to the, this was the highest praise they could give him. But it was also his death warrant because he didn't deny that he was a God. He said, okay, I, I like the idea of being a God. Huh? I'm in charge here. I'm, I'm the one who's telling people to jump and how they can ask how high on the way up. But that's, you know, they're, I'm, I'm the big man around here. But God said, no, you're not. I am. And we need to remember that we cannot uh, boast ourselves. Anything that we do is, as, is with the resources that God has given us. God has allowed us to be in the position we are, no matter what that position is. And it is God who is the one who is to be praised. Not, not man. Not any man. No matter what his authority or power you know, he had the whole Roman government behind him. But God said, I am in charge here. And so Herod died that day, right there in front of everybody, a robe arrayed in his royal apparel. And having given this big speech and accusing Tyre and Sidon, and all of a sudden he dropped dead right there in front of him. I like that verse 24, the next verse. It says, but the word of God grew and multiplied. The church, people saw this and said, aha, God is in charge. God is real. God can do things that the Roman government can't do. And the church grew and multiplied. The word of God grew and multiplied. People believed God. And this was here in, well, Caesarea is, was in Samaria. And so God's word prospered and spread. And verse 25, the last verse there says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry and took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Now they had gone to Jerusalem. They weren't here on the seacoast at, or at uh, Caesarea, but they, were, they had come from Jerusalem where they had gone to take that offering from the church at Antioch. And they had delivered that money and they picked up John Mark and brought him back here to Antioch. And 
So they had fulfilled their ministry. They'd taken that money up there and delivered it to the church at Jerusalem, to the elders of the church there. And they brought John Mark back with them. And I'm going to stop our reading there. This this goes on here. Um, they're at the church at Antioch. So we see that in verse 1 of chapter 13. But we'll stop our reading here. But are there comments on, on any of this? Certainly, this is an exciting place where the apostles were... It shows uh, James being beheaded and, and Peter being thrown in prison and and these and this king, this this Roman appointed king, throwing his weight around and God put him put even this king in his place, killed him outright. We have a powerful God that we serve. One that isn't to be belittled by any of any uh, power on earth. Yes, Tyler. This is not the first time God has exercised His authority over an earthly king. No. Uh, we studied in, uh, we studied in Daniel and how God put Nebuchadnezzar under subjection. He didn't kill him, but He made him take form of a beast for a time. Yeah. Or so, or Pharaoh in Egypt. You know, for Pharaoh in Egypt, hardened his heart, uh, even to the point where he loses all those under subjection to him that that were enslaved, the Israelites, and then subsequently took a big portion of his host that were pursuing. Yes. So, you know, his chariots. This, even this is God again showing the people that are people of the world that are not under subjection to him who has total authority. Yes. And that's him. And he, you know, I mean, the scripture does attestify to that. He, he causes men to take their place, you know, causes men to rise up and he causes them to fall. Yes. So, I mean, he places, it, it was, it was the Lord showing, hey, you think you're here by your own will and accord and because you found favor among men. No, I caused this to happen. And you no longer, you no longer, you don't recognize that. So guess what? I'm going to show where the authority lies. Yes. With me. Yes. You know. Then he goes on and he. Yes, he. I mean, they do that. Lose uh, James is beheaded and, and these things happen. But likewise, also it shows us as his servants that we're under subject to his plan, whatever that may be. You know whether in death or in life. That's right. You know, um, I mean, there's a reason this, this particular set of script, scripture is called the Acts. <laughs> it, you know, it's to show the demonstration of God through his servants. Through his, his servants. Apostles, his Absolutely. So this this still is, is t- attesting to the glory and the honor of God, which, which his servants are supposed to do. So... It is certainly, it's certainly exciting. And we forget that today, in today's time. We think, oh, this is biblical time. But it's, God's still, authority is still the same here. Absolutely. And, and I think of the book of Ephesians where it says, by grace, the unmerited favor, are you saved? And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, 
and not of works, lest any man should be able to boast, whether he's king or, or anybody else. You can't boast against God. Amen. This is what they did here. And Herod boasted against God, says, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the big cheese around here. I'm, I'm the king. But God said, no, you're not. You're dead. And God can do that. He has the right. I, I even think of Job in this, in this regard because Job was a man of God. He's, he did the right things. But when God boasted of Job and said to Satan, have you seen my servant Job? I, I'll tell you what, I'd be quaking in my boots if God started bragging about me. And rightly so. Because I'm nobody. And, you know, God has the right to do that. And even to brag before, before Satan. And I, I hope that I would do even as well as Job did. You know, Job put up with a lot of uh, uh, people telling him what he did wrong, why he was being punished by God. But it wasn't that. He was being punished by Satan. But God said, you can't touch his life. Satan told Satan, you can't touch this man's life. You can take all that he has, take his children, take his his farm, his, his livelihood, put sores on him. You can do all those things to him. And God has the right to do that to any one of us, to put us in, in times of trouble. But it's a time of testing for us. Whether we will give God the glory in, in the situation we're in, even for the situation, for the pain and the trouble and the, and the heartache and all all of the loss, God is still God, and he still has that right to be honored and glorified in our lives. And we need to give him thanks even for the troubles that we face. So, yeah, Andy, you have a comment? I was just thinking, you know, we can be scared like Job because sometimes... Oh, yes. Yes. So, I mean, the way I see it is that you just plain can't avoid suffering in this life. You're going to have it. It might as well be good for something. And so, like with Job, the Lord rewarded him back everything. I think maybe with other people he didn't. But regardless, what, what Job had to go through, it changed his life and made it better. Yes. Yes, yes. But, Why so me? <laughs> right. Yes. And uh, he benefited from it, even though I would hate to have to go through that, because that 
Yes. Yes. Or, or maybe even look at it as an opportunity to show others how God expects us to act. When we know how to act and don't do it that way, we are punished for it. We, we suffer loss. Maybe not in this life, but in that to come. We lose reward that we might otherwise have had. All right. If there's no other comment, we'll, we'll close this morning. And appreciate your listening. Okay. And I'll remember to hit this blue button again. <laughs> Sorry, Brother Ed. <laughs> I think I'm technology dumb sometimes, but <laughs> I'm glad y'all are pretty forgiving of that. <laughs> well, um, again, glad to have everybody here this morning, especially our visitors. Glad to have uh, Larissa and John Michael with us this morning. And uh, glad to have Andy, as always. So... Um, this morning, I'd like to take uh, turn our attention to Proverbs 31. Not that this was just the reason, uh, you know, that I'm focusing on you ladies for for that uh, for because of today, but uh, just looking over some things this week, and I was reminded of some things, and thought I might share them with y'all. So we'll look at Proverbs 31, uh, very familiar passage of scripture. Uh, we'll read through this. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right. We'll start there in uh, verse 10 of uh, the 31st proverb. It says, Who can find a virtuous woman? For her prize is far above rubies. The heart of her husband doth safely trust in her, and so that she shall have no need of spoil. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life, and she will seek, seeketh wool and flax and worketh willingly with her hands. She is like the merchant ship that she bringeth her food from afar. She riseth also while it is yet night and giveth meat to the household and a portion to the maidens. She considereth a field and buyeth it with the fruit of her hands and she uh, planteth a vineyard. She girdeth her loins with her strength and strengthened her arms. She perceiveth that her merchandise is good, and her candle goeth not out by night. She layeth her hands to the spindle, and her hands to hold the distaff. She stretcheth out her hand to the poor, and yea, she stretches forth her hand to the needy. She is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. And she maketh herself coverings of tapestry, her clothing is silk and purple, and her husband is known in the gates. When he sitteth among the elders of the land, she maketh fine linen and selleth it, and delivereth girdles unto the merchant. Strength and honor her clothing, and she shall rejoice in the time to come. 
She openeth her mouth with wisdom, and in her tongue is the law of kindness. She looketh well to the way of her household, and eateth not the bread of idleness. Her children arise up, and call her blessed, and her husband also, and he praiseth her. Many daughters have done virtuously, but thou excellent, excellest them all. Favor is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands, and let her own works praise her in the gates. This proverb attests to the worth of a godly woman. Considering that the affairs of the household here, which he, she, he kind of goes over here in the writings, that she seeks the betterment of her household. She provides food, rising up early in the morning, providing food for her household and for the maidens. She seeks to work with her hands and to provide the goods, not only for her household, but for those in need. She seeks the financial welfare of her household. And she chases the child as she runs. <laughs> Go on. Go back to your seat. So then it goes on, and she also... With, with the works of her hands, she, pur she purchases vineyard and plants th thereof. So she's not only skilled in providing things in her home, but she's also skilled in prepping the land and providing. And then she also, what does it say there? Stretches out her hand to the poor, and she reacheth forth her hands to the needy. She provides for those in need. And it says she's not afraid of the winter. She's not afraid of the snow. Why? Because she's provided everything her household needs to stay warm and to be provisioned for in the winter. It says her husband is known in the gates and he sitteth among the elders of the land. So this, this person, we know that the men of that time went and said and dealt business at the gates. So... He obviously had some good repute there, and so did she because of her dealings as well in the latter verses there. But we see here that these are the qualities that are spoken of of a virtuous and godly woman. Often in today's society, we seek to place women at a, at a different level than they, what they have previously been placed in history, right? When really, they should be esteemed as highly as their workings are, right? Just like men. But without our women, our households would suffer. God so ordained this, I guess, order, as for, for the word I can think of at the moment, because without our co-heir, it would be hard to to work our house, wouldn't it? The passage here is a reminder of what embodies a servant of the Lord. Someone that seeks to encourage and support and provide for others of their household and for those that have a need thereof. This was 
God's arrangement has not changed over the years, although man seeks to change those things and force people to move outside the home to provide for their families. I'm not knocking that in any, any wise. But there should be no confusion on our part as to the role that our women fulfill. They're not they're not to be scorned or lessened, but they provide they provide what they're supposed to in their homes. The most important thing that we loud is that they fear the Lord and that they help teach our children the things of the Lord. It says, favor, and one, one translation says, favor and beauty are, what? Deceitful and vain. But a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. What's the most important thing above all else? The scripture says it. It says, serve the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That was the command that the Lord give. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. While we're turning there, a few notable women in the scripture that we look to as examples are Sarah, Leanne Rachel, Esther, Ruth, Rahab, Priscilla, Mary, Martha, Elizabeth. They're examples in the scripture of women and their service to the Lord. Ephesians chapter 5. Apparently I moved it. There we go. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21. So submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water. <clears throat> Excuse me. With the washing of the water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought the men to love their wives as their own bodies. And he that loveth his wife loveth himself. Men, we're without excuse as well. I'm talking to myself as well. And how we are to treat our spouses. Not, it's not just the responsibility of the wife to be subject unto God. It's our responsibility as well. And it's our responsibility to protect our wife, to love our wife as the Lord has loved us. He says there, Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, so let their wives be to their own husbands in everything. We put ourselves under subjection to Christ, don't we? That's the main point of it, is subjection to Christ. If we subject ourselves to Christ, the rest of these things fall into line. He commands the husband to love his wife as his own flesh. It's something I need improvement in. 
We're commanded. It's not optional to love our spouse. Amen? It's not an option. The concern is that we be fashioned in the likeness of Christ as Christ and the church are fashioned. So if we're not reconciling up with the scripture, we need to change some things that we do in our service to the Lord. Let's look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. It says, Whatsoever ye do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your own wives and be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is the well-pleasing well unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Servants, obey in all things your masters, according to the flesh, not for your service, as men-pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord, and not unto men, knowing that the Lord ye shall receive of the reward of your inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ." But he that doeth wrong shall receive from the wrong which he hath done, and there it is no respect of persons. What is the encouragement there? He says there, Whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Not just wives, but husbands too. And children. As servants of God. He goes on there and he says, Wives, submit to your husbands unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. A lot is talked about this day and age regarding the relationship between a husband and wife. Who is to be master over the other? It's not. You're co-heirs. You're one flesh before God, right? You're joined in marriage. What's it say there? What? Man is joined together, let uh, no one cut asunder, right? I know I didn't do that verse justice, but consider that. The world will try to pervert the way our relationship in Christ should be. Man and wife, one to another. Let us not be fooled, but the scripture says regarding our relationship one with another. Again, says submit to your husband. But what's the, what's the way the church is organized? Christ is the head, right? It says men are placed in subjection to Christ, so on and so forth. We're all subject to Christ. But if we're performing our proper duties as husbands, we set up our wives for success, don't we? I mean, that's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to teach our households as the men of the household. But wives have roles as well. They support. They encourage the household. It's not as it was in the days of the Old Testament or even the New Testament where they had to arise early in the morning and cook for their households and they had to, the, the laundry washing and things. We have conveniences here that save a lot of time. We should be thankful for those conveniences. But the relationship there is not changed. the submitting to your husband and likewise the husband to the wife and treating them so should be focused on our subservience to Christ. 
That's the focus of the scripture. Encouragement here is the duties towards one another. Do all. Submit. And these women that we see in the scripture submitted themselves to their husbands. Not in the way that we like to, we have traditionally colored it or the way that the world colors it, but in the way that the Lord fashioned it. Supporting and ministering to the needs of the people of the household and those without that have need. Like what Brother Ed said this morning, through God all things are possible. We submit to God and the proper functioning of our household in this assembly, then it'll be carried out, won't it? But we have to be submitting to the Lord. I don't have time to reach all of these examples in the scripture of, of these godly women, but let's turn to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. We'll read verse 3. It says, And said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. Let a little water, I pray you, to be fetched, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will fetch a morsel of bread, and comfort you, your hearts. After that ye shall pass on, for therefore are ye come to your servant. And they said, So do, as thou hast said. Let's skip down to verse 9. It says, And they said unto him, Where is Sarah thy wife? And he said, Behold, in the tent. And he said, It will certainly return unto thee to the time of life. And lo, Sarah thy wife shall have a son. That translation there is about the time of a year span. So, a time is typically a period of a year. <clears throat> so they're going to return in a year. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> it says, And they said unto him, I will certainly return unto you according to the time of life. And lo, Sarah thy wife shall have a son. And Sarah heard it from the tent door which was behind him. And now Abram and Sarah were old and well stricken in age. And it ceased to be that Sarah after the manner of women. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? And the Lord said unto Abraham, Wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I be of surety bear a child, which, I, which am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord at the time appointed that I will return unto thee according to the time of life? And Sarah shall have a son. And Sarah denied, saying, I have not laughed, for she knew she was afraid. And he said, Nay, but thou didst laugh. And the men arose from thence and looked towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. So here we have an interesting exchange between the Lord and Sarah and Abraham. We know by this account that they were old in age and that they were promised an heir. And they had at this point had an heir, but when they arrived, they says, okay, at this time next year when I return, you're going to have a son. And Sarah laughed. I think, think she thought it was funny to be, I mean, if she laughed, she's, it was like, yeah, right, I'm old. <laughs> but the Lord rebuffed her and he said, no. He says, is it too much for the Lord to handle? 
But at that, she denied no because she was afraid. She knew who he was. She acknowledged who he was. And then guess what? She didn't fear, did she? And it says nothing there about her being scared about what was going to take place. But she trusted there. And the Lord's plan, in a latter verse there, I failed to find it, but latter verse there. She was not afraid of what was going to happen. But she trusted the Lord and she trusted what God told her husband. How interesting that she did. Think about Rahab. She trusted the men. She had heard of the, the, the glory of God and how he had delivered Israel in their battles and the conquest of the land of Canaan. She feared God, not those men, but she said, you better honor your promise with me and remember me <laughs> when you come and destroy this city. They said, well, you stay in your house with your people and you won't be killed. So Rahab likewise knew what to submit to, didn't she? And the Lord blessed her for it. He blessed Sarah. He also blessed Esther with the queenship. Why? Because she submitted herself to God. And the rest of that stuff followed, followed on. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. First Timothy chapter two. And verse nine. It says that a like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel and shame uh, shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Let the women learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed in Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. So what was the instruction here regarding the women? There was a certain order that we're, that we're to observe in the Lord's work. Doesn't mean that women can't participate. I think the, the, the focus, the intent there is not to usurp the authority that God has put in order. Because trust me, us guys do a good, a good, uh, do the work ourselves of usurping our own authority of God sometimes. We try to place ourselves in higher stirrups than we should. But nonetheless, the encouragement here is to follow a certain order. What's the intent there? Not to be concerned with apparel. Place yourself in this particular time and place and what was going on. I mean, that helps you understand the scripture. It's applicable to us today. But also, it's important for us to understand what was going on at the time that warranted this, this discussion. We know at that particular time with idol worship and a lot of these people coming out of pagan religions, there was a lot of things that were going on, the adorning of their flesh and how they, how they carried themselves and their proper placing. A lot of women were priests and prophetesses for these false gods. 
And they adorned themselves so that they had a status higher than men. Looking at the scripture, God ordained it differently, didn't he? Because he is the living God. He talks about the apparel and the proper focus of what we should be, how we should adorn ourselves. Particularly, he's addressing women. Why? Because it wasn't the outward appearance that mattered, was it? It's not to say we can't dress up, we can't do those things. But what's the focus? Was the focus on them or on God? He says, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. Learning and I know this is a this verse is a matter of contention, but I won't I won't put it to task, but there are different interpretations by different brethren there. But my wife comes to me with questions and, and we talk together and we study and we reason in the scripture. And I'll just use this as an example. I know in times past, there's been discussion amongst brethren that come, down, come to almost blows over women have, having a, a thought or a comment. Or what do they do if they don't have a husband? What do they, you know, there's, there's different thoughts there. But let's just study the scripture and work it out that way. Let the Lord lead us on that. So obviously there's a, there's a, a proper function there that he talks about. Why? Because they had problems. He says, but if I suffer not a woman to teach nor usurp authority over men, but to be in silence. Doesn't mean that a woman can't teach children how to serve the Lord. They can't be an example before the Lord. They can't support. The point is, it's not to usurp the authority that God has placed in order. He says, for Adam was first born, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but a woman being deceived was in transgression, notwithstanding she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Do you think Eve had regrets? You betcha she did. I'm, I'm almost positive of it. But here we see how the Lord fashioned the inner workings of his people. It doesn't detract from you women being beneficial to the assembly and how we function. All the more it makes you even more supportive and a better part of the assembly. You provide us with children. You provide us with support and comfort and I don't know about you, but I've, I can cook food sometimes, but my wife cooks a lot better food than I do. And there's times when I'm upset. There's times when I'm upset that my wife brings me back into check. Ladies, this is not to diminish this, your, what you're functioning in the Lord's assembly. 
counterwise, it's to increase and to, to show you how beneficial you are in the service of the Lord. The instruction here to Timothy was to show them what, what the proper functioning of an assembly was supposed to be before the Lord. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 5. Verses, the first seven verses there, it says, Rebuke not an elder, <clears throat> but entreat him as a father, and a younger men as brethren, and elder women as mothers, and younger as sisters with all purity. Honor widows that are widows indeed, but if any widow having children or nephews, let them learn first to shew piety at home, to requite their parents, for that is good and acceptable before God. Now she that is a widow indeed and desolate trusteth in God, and continueth in supplications and prayers night and day. But she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. And these things give in charge that they may be blameless. But if any provide not his own, especially for those of his household, hath denied the faith that is worse than an infidel. Let not a widow be taken into the number under threescore years old. Having been the wife of one man, well reported for it so as good works as he have brought up children. If she have lodged strangers, if she had washed the feet of the saints, if she had received the afflicted, if she have diligently followed every good work. But the younger widows refuse, for when they have begun to wax one against Christ, they will, they will marry, having damnation because they've cast off their first faith. With all they have learned, to be idle, wandering from house to house, and not only idle, but tattlers and busybodies, speaking now the things that they ought not. I will therefore that younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give none, uh, none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. For some are already turned aside to Satan. If any man or woman that believeth have widows, let him relieve them, and let not the church be charged, that it may relieve them that are widows indeed." So there's instruction here regarding widows, younger and older widows. It talks about the church's functioning and caring for those widows and their place in the church. He says if they're younger, then they need they, they can remarry. But he says if they're beyond that age, what's the responsibility? Family was functioned there to take care of their elderly and their aged or infirmed including widows. Why? Because it says there, these widows, if they've done these things, they deserve to be taken care of. They minister to the needs of the assembly during their life. The culture of today's society, we ship people off to nursing homes. They're no longer our responsibility when they become aged. There's no proper, no, no, no example there of how we should treat our elderly this day and age. Actually, there is. It's according to the scripture here. But specifically, it mentions widows. Why? There was some kind of issue going on here with that widows weren't being cared for. They were, they needed to be, he needed to remind them of how they needed to care for their assembly and what needed to be done. This was Paul teaching Timothy how to do these things. And how the church was supposed to function. So what's the responsibility there? Care for, care for your, your elderly. Without these women, 
Those things couldn't have, those, those things were done. The men were out working in the fields and doing whatever jobs that they were supposed to do to leave their household, to support their household, but the women also had a function too. And it included, of course, their caring for the elderly women. That was the order. So we see in these different accounts that we've read up until this point, proper functioning of women in Scripture. The examples that we have. And us men, we have a few things we can learn from these women. Scripture shows it, bears it out. I would like to be like Sarah in the fact that even though she laughed, she didn't fear what was going to happen once the Lord said, oh, you're going to, this is going to happen. Is it too... Is it too small for the Lord to do? Or is it too careless for the Lord to do? No. But she trusted the Lord. Rachel was barren. Appreciate your patience with, with us. So, so it was with Rachel that she was barren. The Lord had closed up her womb. And at the proper time, what did he do? He opened her womb and she bare him children. The faith of these women showed us that God is able to do these things for us. What's the only thing that keeps it from happening? Our fear and our doubt. Misplaced fear, not the reverential fear that I that we talk about so often. And Ruth, who having lost her husband and her father-in-law, was released to go back to her kinsmen, and said, "No." She told, "What did she tell Naomi? Where you go, I'll go. Your people are my people, and your God is my God." What effect that that had on her that she did that and followed her mother-in-law back to where she was from. Not only that, but God, seeing that God provided her a way to be redeemed and her husband to be redeemed for her to have an, a lineage there. And whose lineage was it? Led to Christ, didn't it? We talk about those people in the scripture, especially Mary. Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the other Mary, Mary, the mother of Jesus, think about that, how scary that was to be a virgin and to not have, she was betrothed to be married. She wasn't married yet. At that particular time, she had to walk out on faith because they were gonna, what did they do to people then? She would be considered an adulteress because she had had a relationship out of marriage. But yet, the angel of the Lord told her, what? Fear not. You know, he told her basically not fear not. Same thing with Elizabeth. I mean, think about it. They knew what was going to happen and her husband, Zacharias. That had to be an exercise in faith there. We have to be careful that we don't deify the examples we have in Scripture because they're not God. They were flesh and blood like you and I. 
but they're given the, the accounts here are given for our example and our teaching and how we are to function in the body of Christ today. So let us call to mind these examples. The Lord gives them to us according to scripture to reconcile our lives to see if we fit in what the Lord has set out that his servant should be. It goes for you women and for us men too. Because we are co-heirs. We work together. And together in Christ, we function as the body of Christ. Let us not forget the order with which he has caused us to be put together. I hope this has been an encouragement for you all.